Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital revolution by speaking with business executives and thought leaders who are changing how the world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is Tony Uphoff, CEO at ThomasNet, which Tony's a regular guest of ours, monthly part of our digital all-stars, and he talks about Uphoff on industry because Thomas connects hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions now, of buyers and sellers with a massive database describing what's going on in the procurement, purchasing, and innovation chains throughout the industrial world. Tony, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, Bob, always uh, great to be on with you. Thanks. And Tony, you're also doing some podcasting now, right? We are. Thanks for remembering. So you've inspired us. <clears throat> so we launched uh, the Thomas Industry Update podcast, oh gosh, about four months ago now. We've got six or seven podcasts. We're on a bi-weekly cadence. And, and it's really been fun for us. And, and look, you've been a pioneer around the, the idea of a, a podcast around technical areas. It's a great way of sharing um, insights in a, a very accessible format. So we've covered everything from uh, women in manufacturing, which is a really, really you know high growth area, and, and we've we've done some interviews, particularly one with a woman named Karen Norheim. She's a president of an American crane company. It just I think kind of blew people away with some of the innovative things that they're doing. We've covered the skill shortage, which is ironic for a lot of people in, uh, in uh, the United States. They don't realize that US manufacturing has hundreds, if not millions of uh, jobs available. We're just not churning out the talent because these are high tech jobs today. They're not kind of what the manufacturing industry was back in the 40s and 50s. And then we've been uh, looking at uh, some of the uh, advanced parts of Industry 4.0 you know, kind of cool looks at some really advanced technology and some of the technologies that are really, you know, digital technology converging with traditional industrial products and services. It's really, you know, some exciting stuff. So we've been, we've been having a blast with it. Tony, can I ask on that before, because you sent over some great things for us to chat about today, but just on that point, uh, I, you know, growing up in Western Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of industrial jobs around there. As these changes that you just described take place, is industry still going to be sort of the catch-all term that carries forward on this, or is, is it becoming something different? You know, it's a really good question. I think if you were to talk to professionals in the marketplace, they might identify themselves as in the aerospace industry or the automotive industry or... Um, consumer packaged goods or the, the even the pharmaceutical industry, which people don't think of as traditionally having to do with manufacturing industrial markets, but it does. Many people might um, define themselves as supply chain. You know, I'm involved in the supply chain. So I think this is, um, I don't want to call it fragmented, but I think it has multiple pieces to it. We use the catch-all term of industry or industrial markets and by that, what we really mean for the most part is they are companies that are, are uh, either bringing together components and then manufacturing and or custom manufacturing products and services. But boy, Bob, underneath that, how many, you know, how many companies and products would fit in there? As an example, uh, thomasnet.com currently has 72,000 individual categories. So it's a fairly, uh, fairly broad marketplace, to be sure. 
Yeah, and Tony, the, it's so interesting too to hear you talk about those issues of uh, capabilities and job openings and the requirements of these companies, right? Because as quickly as some of those gaps are filled and those positions are filled, then the pace of innovation in the markets that you cover, that's going to have jumped ahead. And it seems like there's going to be this escalating series of new opportunities, new openings, new advancements triggering the need for new skills. It's, it's a profound time right now. And got to be for the folks in your audiences, where, do, where are they looking? How do they try to find the, the people they need? It's really hard. And, and Bob, as you well know, from, from having uh, had a ringside seat, as I use the phrase, for so many years at these times of disruption. So, you know, technology is always moving along, but we have one of these moments every, what, you know, three to five years where there's truly a disruptive technology introduced and you leapfrog. We're going through an era like that in the broad-based industrial marketplaces. And it really is whatever terminology you want to use. I, some people use industry 4.0. There's all, all kinds of different you know, things, but it basically is we now have uh, the internet of things or the industrial internet of things. We have um, cloud computing, mobile computing, big data. All these things are in relative orbit today, as you know, Bob. So now we can start to innovate with business models. So now we can start to do some really interesting things. Well, I think on the technical side of that, the average industrial company, if there is such a thing, or manufacturing company, is very advanced in understanding, um, you know, technology, robotics, um, you know, advanced manufacturing, all the kinds of things. And they're starting to experiment with sensors and different things and combining them with traditional industrial products. Where the gap in the, um, the skills uh, really comes from is just having people that have two skill sets at once. They have to have some sort of a, a, a sense, almost like a craftsman. They understand how to build and to make things. And then they also have a deeply technology rich, you know, mindset. And, and, you know, if you think how that works, you can teach people about technology, but a craftsman is an experiential skill. Yeah. Right. So it is this interesting blend between, you know, almost the traditional old trade schools that, that you know, are, are having a little bit of a resurgence here. But as you and I've talked before, these are really what I call new collar jobs. They're not blue collar jobs or white collar jobs. They're really very, very advanced technology centric jobs, but they still are about the output of a product, right, that they're manufacturing. So I think it's an interesting mix. I think the, the, uh, the, the era we've come through where we, we pushed every young person into a four-year degree, whether that made sense or not, I think we're starting to see that shift a little bit where people are realizing, wow, these are really good jobs. And not everybody is suited to pursue knowledge work and a four-year degree. These people could do incredibly well for themselves if they focused into a different type of program. So I think we're seeing some movement there. But What's happened is the U.S. manufacturing industry has become so competitive. We've seen a tremendous amount of reshoring that we can't keep up with with the uh, with the job growth, and it is going to be you know this is a good problem to have. It doesn't make it any less of a problem, however. But Tony, that that's wild, as you say. It uh, it's a good problem to have, but still, it's very much a problem. So you brought up this issue of supply chains and the way things are changing there, you know, very, very rapidly and the uh, reshoring. 
component of that, Tony, too, right? So all of a sudden, you see for a lot of companies in industrial markets, they are rethinking, right, in this sort of new age with some of the new capabilities, new data, new information. They're able to reevaluate and try to, again, optimize for the current times and current capabilities. What's the right of global supply chain to have? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because it's the same idea, Bob. We're seeing technology accelerate what we can and can't do with supply chains, and it's mostly what we can do today. And if you think of the era we live in, right? So supply chains are moving very rapidly. I can, I can change them. I can, um, I can adapt. If something were to break in my supply chain, I can, I can, um, I can react. In, in ways that, that, you know, before it was so time consuming and it took me months, if not years, to get these relationships in place. So what's happened is this idea of real-time data, which is not new in other industries, the idea that you would apply real-time data to your supply chain is kind of crazy, but it is now actually happening. So we have examples of customers of ours, Bob, that have dashboards up in uh, like a centralized service uh, area and they will literally have a physical camera showing all of the different components of their supply chain. So if anything were to happen, they can move in real time. And these things are up 24 hours a day, streaming data back to a centralized source. So it allows them to start to see, boy, do I need to look at a second source or a third source to make sure that it's fail safe, that you know, I never, my supply chain never goes down because I can, I can manage it in real time. The other thing, Bob, is, is it's creating this idea of um, TCO as applied to a supply chain. And you'll well remember in technology when IT teams woke up one day and said, hey, wait a minute, the price they're telling me it is and the price I'm actually spending on this is dramatically different, right? The same thing's happening in the supply chain. So this real-time data is giving supply chain managers the ability to understand really what they're spending. I'll give you a simplistic example. Companies are now waking up and saying, boy, I outsourced manufacturing to Vietnam. But now with total cost of, of, uh, of ownership, if you will, the supply chain, you know where this is gonna go. When you actually pull everything through in terms of how long it takes to ship it back, what I'm spending to ship it back, the loss or breakage or perhaps, you know, uh, you know parts that don't show up of the order, right? When you run the math on that, am I saving money or am I, not saving money and how does that really work? So I think what we're seeing is somewhat of a revolutionary time. The other thing is, uh, you know, kind of ripped from the headlines, the tariffs are constantly in the headlines. Here's what you know to be true about the tariffs. You can't predict the impact. We don't know what's gonna happen, right? You know trading partners the size of the United States and China need each other, but you can't predict the timing. You don't know if a deal is gonna be struck or not be struck. We think what is going to start to happen is the, this, um, this dynamic that I'm describing, real-time data, advanced technology, but also the, 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 uh, the risk of tariffs is getting more and more companies to identify localized supply chains, if not as their primary, Bob, certainly as their backup. And so we think over time, that's also kind of driving some of this continued growth of US manufacturing because we think more and more companies are thinking, hey, I, I've got to have a local supply chain to an extent, depending on the on the industry or business, because I can't risk, you know, complete disruption in my business if 
a trading partner I can no longer do business with from a cost point of view, you know, based on the tariffs. Tony, I wonder if, you know, with what you've described there and some of the capabilities that Thomas has, right, if that TCO thing is, you know, it's, it's got some years on it, the, the idea is sound, but a lot of what you're describing here is that plus something else more about opportunity than cost. So maybe you and your colleagues can uh, create a new three-letter acronym about the opportunity, you know, total yeah. size of our, anyway, I, I don't mean to give you assignments here on our, on our, on our discussion, but the insights that you're that describing. One's, that one's going up on the whiteboard oh. <laughs> behind me. So next time we talk, you'll see that one up there. Hey, I got you're right though. You're, no, but I'm sorry to cut you off, Bob, but you're, you're right. I mean, I think like oftentimes happens, you know, these things start as almost academic exercises. And I, I don't mean to say that as a negative about higher education. I just mean it from the standpoint of, you know, we take sort of a rigorous examination of something and then we send, you know, in this particular case, well, I'm spending too much money. When you actually look at this is, how do I make more money doing this? Yeah. Not just save money. And, and I think you're right. I think there's a flip side of this, which is really speed to market, flexibility, right? And, and efficiency is important, but I think at the risk of, if I can sell more and move quicker and beat competitors by being faster to a marketplace, that's always gonna outrun a cost savings. And that other point, Tony, that you brought up, uh, hinted at today and certainly talked about before, which is the capability of a lot of industrial market companies to be able not just to sort of crank out whole lots of the same things, but customized, personalized, you know, orders that come in overnight that you don't know what you're going to be making the next day. So it is a wild time. And you think about that. So some of those jobs, the opportunities, the capabilities within the, the markets and the companies you serve have to be these people who understand, you know, what we used to call, right, that's industrial engineer, but sort yeah. of in the, in the, in the modern world. Yeah, well, and in, 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 as you play that out, Bob, it is kind of fascinating too, because if you think about, um, you know, you and I've talked before about this idea of digital transformation to business model transformation. And, and I think this is a great example of us seeing this in, in, in real time start to play out. I'll give you a, an example that you and I have touched on before. Um, additive manufacturing, right, 3D printing, is, is creating a really, really interesting aspect of what you and I are talking about. We can put a 3D printing device in a customer's facility. So now suddenly the whole idea of a supply chain starts to, to be reshaped. Now this isn't gonna work for every type of product or service, but now suddenly the idea that I've, I'm gonna manufacture this, I'm gonna have a truck you know, take it to, a, to an airplane or a truck take it to a ship and then it's gonna be shipped to, you know, now we can start to, to imagine, and again, not with every product, but we can start to imagine a, a completely different uh, way of doing business and it changes the dynamics of the supply chain, but it also changes the business model in, you know, almost everything as a service, right? So if you and I are on the customer end of that machine that sits in our company, boy, we can see anytime, you know, we turn that thing on and we draw down a new part, but that might be a monthly service or some sort of a program we'd like to subscribe to, which again is opening up whole different business models for quote unquote traditional manufacturing or industrial companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tony, let me uh, real quick um, just toss out an anecdote. And then I wanted to ask you about all this innovation, all this, you know, wildly cool, modern stuff, fast paced. 
Then you get down toward the end, the B2B payments category. I think yeah. you've said needs still need some work, but the one supply chain thing I wanted to talk about, and again, this probably goes back 15 or 20 years, but there was, um, I was talking to the guy who was the CIO at JP Morgan Chase. And he said, there was a time at which looking through some numbers, he was looking at things about happened at an ATM machine when people would go to deposit a check there. And he said, what was the process? He said, well, you'd take a check, you'd endorse it, you'd put it you know, into a slot, it would sit in something, the, somebody at the bank would get it, put it in a lockbox. Later that day, a Brinks diesel truck would come by, pick it up, drive to the next place, pick those up. They drive to someplace, somebody took it out. You know, but he said he went to all this. He said, you know, there's time, money, security guards, diesel fumes getting spewed out, customers saying, what the heck is going on with this check I deposited? And finally, you know, he said, somebody went bang. He said, why don't you put a little scanner in the ATM? And uh, it was something that, as you and I have talked about before, was once somebody says it, it's perfectly obvious. But until yeah. somebody says it, it's not obvious at all. Yeah. And I just think that the points you're making here, the issues you're describing, these opportunities that you're highlighting here, of what's happening in the industrial markets where that confluence of data and business models and traditional capabilities and personalized, customized manufacturing. What an interesting time you folks are in. Yeah. Well, and, and to your point, Bob, the other thing is starting to happen, and, and your, your vignette is a beautiful one of showing how these types of, if I can call them innovation or disruptive innovations have, have happened through history. We're also seeing, you know, small factory or, or light factory models start to take off, right? So, again, go back to the supply chain. If, if, if the only way for you and I to get product and, and goods close to a customer is we've got to ship it from a huge factory that we've got, that's, I was just using the example, sits in the Midwest and you're a customer out in California. Boy, that's tough. That's tough. And then I try to think, well, gosh, could I build a factory out in California? And I, well, you know what I might be able to build is a relatively small more nimble factory in California. It doesn't take up nearly the space, not nearly as expensive. I could locate it near several customers in a, in a set. So you're seeing that start to break out too, right? Where I think, you know, it, that doesn't feel like an innovation, but it is because the technology of making these machines, smaller form factor, higher output, we can start to do that now and, and bring that we can get closer to customers as opposed to forcing the supply chain to deal with the customer wherever they are. We can actually bring our manufacturing closer to where that customer is, which by definition, Bob, changes the nature of the supply chain. And then you take that tone with what you talked about a minute ago of the additive manufacturing devices, right? It's almost like there's a spectrum. Pick the point up or down the line that's most effective. Yeah, yeah. Lots of options. So, Tony, tell us about this thing as you need to go through that sort of the far end. So the things are made. It's time for me to pay some. What's going on with B2B payments and uh, are, are they as modern as they need to be? Yeah. And, and Bob, you and I have touched on this before. And I, I'm always kind of fascinated by this. And, and I, I may get the stats slightly off, but I think it's still upwards of 75 percent of most trading relationships are paid via a, a traditional purchase order or a traditional check, which just seems astounding to me in the era that we live in. And, you know, granted that's 
it, it's, you know, more and more of it's becoming e-invoicing and electronic payments, and there's all kinds of, you know, tributaries there. But this isn't happening very quickly, and, and I'm kind of fascinated by it. So we're watching a series of trends here. So what is used in the industry all the time is this idea of quote to cash. And if you think about quote to cash, right, I'm a manufacturer, I, I give you a quote, you, you agree, we sign, and then you're paying me for that transaction. If you think about it and just visualize it as a, as a continuum, it's the last 25 or 30% of something else. And so what's starting to happen is companies are now starting to look at this idea of interest to invoice, right? right? And we've talked about Qualtrics and uh, SAP and, you know, it, it, you're seeing more companies trying to put the whole playing field together. We're starting to see some things in the payment area that we think will start to bring these disparate pieces together and may very well, I wouldn't predict a, a dramatic acceleration, Bob, but may make it easier to bring the idea of digital payments and you know, e-invoicing together because you're gonna see, um, you know, pardon the expression, a bit of a cliche, but you're gonna see more of the customer journey, right? Where we can account for that journey from stem to stern now, as opposed to there's just, you know, hey, I just need you to bill me. Yeah. You know, that's all I really need and I'll, I'll go ahead and pay you. So. But a lot of work to be done in that area. And, and as I said before, it's an area we're watching very, very um, carefully. There's also, as happens in every market, there's some fascinating disruptions in here based on technology. What, what is a, you know, the banks to date can hold this off because they're the only ones that are regulated by the government. So the, the tech folks kind of have to work with the banks. Uh, but if that ever breaks loose, yeah. you're going to see even more disruption of what's going to happen. And we saw this happen in the stock trading industry, Bob. You know, yeah. the, the headline, what uh, today and yesterday was, you know, Schwab buying uh, uh, TD Ameritrade. I guess that, that was the headline of today. And, and fascinating, you know, spectacular to see that coming together. Well, it wasn't too many years ago where the idea of electronic trading for stocks uh, and equity instruments was like, oh my God, you know, it, just, it couldn't be done. Well, now that's the common. So I think you're going to see the B2B payment marketplace follow a similar arc. Um, but for a lot of reasons, I got to say, Bob, it's gone slower than most people would have anticipated. And Tony, one other place where there's a lot of activity uh, sort of on the payment selling end of things you've talked about is social selling. What What's going on there? And is it moving at the pace you feel it needs to. Well, how, how long have, you know, has, has social media and social platforms been a part of our lives? Let's just say for sake of argument, it's been at least a decade, right? And, and I, you know, to, to some of us, it mainstreamed earlier than others. But I think today, you know, everybody who, who's likely going to be online is online on some form of a social network. So on the, you know, the consumer side, it's obviously platforms like Facebook and Instagram and, and things like that, uh, Twitter perhaps. In, in uh, the business arena, it's LinkedIn. And the thing that we think is really fascinating is we think it's being held back as a methodology to help companies use it as a part of a sales and customer engagement process, primarily because there's really no sort of simple guidelines for how to do this. And so I'm sure you get this all the time, Bob, you know, I, I would say three or four times a day, it's not uncommon as an executive to get a reach out on LinkedIn that says something like, hey, I stumbled across your profile and thought we should connect. 
And it's somebody, you know, from a, what appears to be a sophisticated software company, and they're using this to reach out in, in the idea that there's going to, you know, suddenly there's going to be a sales engagement. So imagine you're at a, you know, an industry trade show and you see the CEO of a customer company and you walk over and go, hey, I just happened to stumble across you. I thought it'd be great to connect with you, right? And so I think we're at this funny time where these tools and platforms could be very powerful. We see this on our own platform of ThomasNet, but of helping companies understand how do you present yourself? How do you engage today with prospective buyers of your products and services? And how do you understand where they're coming from uh, and, and, and what you can do for them. And I think this idea of social selling, it was kind of, you might remember, Bob, it was kind of hot eight to 10 years ago, and then it sort of died off. We actually think that idea is gonna start coming back. And maybe we're just seeing this play out more in the manufacturing and industrial marketplaces. But um, if we agree that 70% of a purchase process is done before a buyer will engage with a sales rep, then what are the tools that are available to you to influence, engage, um, support, interact with that buyers they're working through that process. Well, social platforms or platforms like ours that have social interaction features to them, we think are gonna be really a part of, uh, of the future. We're just not sure our industry's caught up on exactly how the heck to use them yet. Yeah, yeah, Tony, it's interesting. And I'll, I'll toss out as my closing thought to you for your reaction, a couple things from the tech sector. One specifically tied to what you said. And the second point, maybe looping back to a couple of things we talked about earlier. So that social selling you just described, you know, it's uh, two and a half years now since Microsoft bought LinkedIn. And I think Microsoft's tried in a lot of ways to stay a, a little bit arm's length from it. Yeah. Said we really want to, you know, respect the autonomy and all that. At the same time, there's such a staggering opportunity there to begin to connect that engine. I think you're starting to see some, some of that, um, influence from Microsoft about raising up the level and the power and the capabilities of these tools. So my, my guess is that's going to, uh, as you've described, that's going to start to accelerate pretty quickly with some help from companies like Microsoft, who, again, I think there are some of their go-to-market capabilities and their awareness of not just how things work right now, but how things could work over the next year or two is going to be fun. And then I, I thought it was uh, wild that maybe this is uh, three months ago, two months ago, but no more than that. Salesforce launched the manufacturing cloud. So, uh, you know, the, this, this company that has uh, just sort of known for sophisticated stuff, you know, deals with healthcare, financial services in these vertical markets. And then they pick manufacturing, I think, for all the great reasons you pointed out, Tony, there is so much happening. There's so many opportunities and, you know, such a big worldwide impact that this could have. It, it, it is amazing. And, and I, I was thrilled to actually see that because I, I, I think um, it shines a light on the vibrancy of this market. Um, I, I think I shared with you in a previous conversation, we recently sat down with some folks from NetSuite who are doing some really interesting things and, and their ERP system is very, they're very focused on the mid-market uh, manufacturing industry and marketplace. And they shared with us kind of some of their strategy and their thinking about that marketplace. These are massive markets. I, I think, you know, what's fascinating is a lot of the technology heretofore has really been about 
the manufacturing process. And now what's happening is technology is changing their business processes, right? Salesforce, NetSuite, go down the list, right? I, I use the expression oftentimes is, you know, the front office is going through digital transformation yeah. and manufacturing as a, as a way to kind of just simplify the, the, the statement. But I think it's, it's great to see that, that starting to happen. And I, I think we're watching literally the digital transformation of industrial sales and marketing just absolutely accelerate right before us. And you know, Bob, what in, in business technology and other areas that probably happened, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, 10 years ago, maybe even. Um, but boy, is it's really starting to happen in this part of the market. Well, all those things, Tony, aren't enough to keep you busy. It sounds like, you know, between your new podcast and you've got some events coming up to tell us what's happening there. Hey, thanks. So the podcast is uh, available on uh, thomasnet.com uh, slash insights. And uh, we also have a daily email newsletter that folks can subscribe to that called the Thomas Industry Update. Um, we also do uh, a Together for Industry tour. So this is both a live series of events, Together for Industry, and then a, a webinar. So we have one coming up on December 11th, and people can register. It's a free event. Um, and we share the latest demand data, Bob, on a local region. In this case, it'll be New York and New Jersey. And then on a national basis, and then some research on the changing nature of the industrial purchase process. So very similar to the conversation you and I have. So that's coming up on December 11th. And again, people can find it on thomasnet.com and uh, uh, it's a free webinar and uh, we get probably 100, 150 people and, and that really interact with these and just love the kind of information because there isn't a lot of this type of data that gets shared in the marketplace. Tony, that's great. And before we go, I just want to ask, it, it looks like those, the, the earbuds you have in, the wires must be perfectly clear, right? Because I can't see them. You know, there's a, there's a new technology, Bob. It's called wireless. No way. Um, I'll, I'll send you a link to some reading you might do about that. And, um, you know, I do like the wired look for you. But, uh, yeah, it's funny. I don't know if you've gotten into the, the new, no commercial here for Apple, but the new AirPod Pros. I have to say it's impressive primarily because uh, they've figured out how to do noise canceling in an in-ear small form factor uh, uh, headphone. I mean, it's just remarkable, the quality. And I, I, when I got them, I thought, okay, I got to really check this uh, noise canceling out. If you haven't tried them, it will blow you away the sophistication these have. It's, it's really remarkable. All right, Tony, great. Thank you for that, for, for you know, your gentle nudge to me into the, the 21st century. I just want to, you know, Whoa. a little, little personal cred. That, Whoa, okay. That's all. all right. But so Tony, what you're saying, there's an upgrade to be had to the iPod Pros, perhaps for the holiday upgrades. season. There are always all upgrades, right. Tony, and that's one of the things we're here for. And uh, <laughs> thank you for, for, uh, for alerting us to that. And uh, yeah. always good to have you, Tony. Really fun stuff. Such an interesting time now across the markets that you and Thomas Net are serving. Thank you, Bob. Always great to see you. I think we're going to get a chance to hang out a little bit uh, next month in the uh, beautiful town of Pittsburgh. I believe so. That should be wonderful. And uh, to all of you folks, thanks for being with us. I look forward to seeing you next time on Cloud Wars Live.